Welcome to another episode of the Cycling Performance Club podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jason Boynton. I am a sports scientist and cycling coach, and I am here with my co-host, Cyrus Monk, who is a professional cyclist with Evo Pro Cycling. And I am also here with Damien Roos, cutting edge coach and host of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. How are you guys doing? I'm good. Good. So just to the people that are out in the audience that are listening, uh, we will periodically um, stop the conversation and ask if you want to come in and join. Feel free to raise your hand. We'll probably try to have some, some blocks in there where you can come in. And I will introduce Damien and Cyrus's topic along with mine. So today I plan on talking about um, pre-programmed training plans. Uh, Damien is going to be discussing uh, skills and skills training. And Cyrus, what are you looking at, Cyrus? I'm looking at openers, so the efforts that would be prescribed to uh, athletes the day before a race to to get them ready for the race okay cool um i went first last week so i will um probably hand it off to uh damien do you want to go first with what you are sure uh talking about yep sure so i'm on my mind this week is skills cycling skills probably a bit broader than that athletic skills as well um mm-hmm. I'm sort of, I'm prescribing some work at the moment that's starting some people off in a, like a base type period. And this is usually a good time to introduce something of a certain skill that somebody may be lacking or doesn't have. Um, And I'm really interested in if this is something that both of you will prescribe for athletes um, and what, what it covers, like what type of skills are out there um, that people can develop uh, and improve on. There is stuff to do with training, of course. So um, any specific adaptions uh, can be one part of it. But then there's technical skills. So sprint training, even I don't know something like standing up on a bike, knowing how to do things like that and get better, more efficient at it. And then there's broader things for me. There's uh, athletic skills. There's learning how to be an athlete and things that go along with that. Nutrition, feeding, rest, recovery, um, protocols, things like that. So it's kind of how, how do you prescribe this stuff? When do you add it in, if at all? And is there a point where somebody is beyond skills? Is there a point where somebody knows everything about how to win a bike race? I don't think so. But is there a point where you don't need to actually um, talk to athletes uh, about certain types of skills because you think they've mastered most of them? Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in anyone, anyone who wants to go first to talk about it. Hmm. Let me mull this one over. You got anything, Cyrus, first off the bat? Yeah, I think um, it's often a very underappreciated aspect of coaching is for most uh, athletes out there and just competitors in general, the number one goal is to win races. <laughs> so you can't do that without a certain set of skills. Um, no matter how strong you are, perhaps a time trial, but even in a time trial, there's 
there's other skills that may come into it rather than just pure physiology. So I think it's definitely an aspect that as a coach you have to have to be able to uh, sort of put time into with your athlete and allocate that time towards that. So and with each athlete, the time will be dedicated towards different skills. So, for example with the newer athlete that's just come across from another sport, it may be simply just getting comfortable on the bike, cornering, descending, bunch positioning, that kind of thing. And then with another rider, it may be skills in terms of when to more sort of race tactics, when to use the the raw power that they have. So I think it's important, especially given the three of us have the cycling background from racing ourselves and obviously are students of the sport in a way in that we we follow quite a lot of racing to actually make use of that where other coaches that maybe just um, are predominantly triathlon or or running coaches and, and working with cyclists to improve their aerobic capacity might not be able to do that. So I think if if you have those skills in your own arsenal then to be able to pass those on to an athlete is really important. Do you ever prescribe or have a chat about someone to do something specific in a race that's coming up? So say there's a club race or something, do you ever give them a challenge of, you know, attacking off the front? Yeah, for example? Definite, definitely I'll do that. I'm lucky in that uh, I'm able to ride or I guess lucky and I'm like at some, some instances I'm able to ride with athletes that I have in Melbourne and and be in races with them. So in that case, I can actually see what's going on and and give direct feedback that way, whereas often you're relying on self-reporting from the athlete, which um, is obviously open to a range of things that might not end up in you getting the full story. Mm, Um, So being able to actually see what's going on is really helpful. But often I'll give goals in minor races of okay today like for example with one athlete i remember in a criterion i was racing in melbourne i said okay he he was fatigued coming into it and um he yeah he was sort of racing more yeah using it as as a training training objective rather than for the result of the race but i said like his goal for the day was to not attack himself but to follow as many taxes as many attacks as possible so when he sees someone going jump onto the wheel rather than attacking each time himself and then just observe how much less energy he spends doing that so that was something that yeah he came up to me after and went wow like i was in every breakaway for that race but it didn't feel like i was ever going high whereas he was a, he's a classic one for attacking and spending a lap by himself out in the wind and then the bunch dragging him back because he's got no one out there with him. So just little drills like that. And then I'll even do it with myself in, in some races here, the the Kermis races, which are notoriously just fast, flat sprint races. I'll just use that as an exercise to, okay, this race I'm going to stay in the top 20 wheels for the whole race and just practice bunch positioning, even if it's, not a race that I can I know I can personally get a, a big result in because of the way the race might pan out and I might be set to do a lead out for a sprinter in our team. 
um, yeah, I can just set myself my own goal of, of doing this in a race. So I think it is something I definitely do prescribe to athletes during their training. Yeah, and it's something that I've been kind of – I had definitely done it over the years, but you're right about this thing. If you're not there and you're getting feedback from uh, a rider, it may shape the way that they're actually – what's really happening when they're in a race. So for me, I'm, I'm being very careful that the goals um, going into that race are set beforehand and then we measure against those rather than just trying to explain away how things happened on the day, which can the interpretation can favour you or not favour you depending on how you're feeling even versus trying to tick off some boxes about I did this, I did this, you know, and that for me I think that's the best way to help hold someone accountable when you're not with them. Um, but we are kind of drifting a little bit from skills here. So if we go back, um, I'm interested to hear, Jason, what, what you have. Um, I think the important thing is, is, and I think Cyrus kind of touched on this as you consider, you know, not only their, you know, their race age for how long have they been in the sport, um, but also, you know, how long they've, how old they are and how long they've been on the planet. So, you know, I think someone with a junior you know, as soon as kids get into the sport, I think the skills stuff is really important early on. And I don't necessarily think it's super important. I mean, it's important because it's good to teach them skills, but it's also like, I think for the young age, it's really good to keep cycling really variable and kind of exciting. And the skills kind of do that. So even if the skills don't necessarily translate into like, you know, a better rider in a sense and a, a large magnitude. I mean, all the skills are, the plan is to kind of help them out at some level. Um, but I think it, a lot of it with young juniors is just keeping the variety and keeping it fun. And, you know, if you get a group of juniors together, you know, you can just ride together and they can just talk or whatever. But if you get them together in a park and they're doing you know, bump drills and things like that. I mean, it, it keeps things exciting for them. Um, I'll stop real quick there before I go on anymore. But like, Damien, you were a junior. Cyrus, I don't know what your background with if, how long you were a junior for. but And you guys were in uh, Australia, which is basically like the Sparta of sports right now, in a sense. Um, <laughs> the Western Sparta of sports. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think? Like, did you guys do a lot of skills when you guys were juniors yeah i did i did um i had a very good slow introduction to the sport we, we would do everything from um bunch riding um bumping people learning how to push people out of the way if they got in your way um picking up water bottles on the ground um what else did we do uh, even things like just technique things. So when you stand mm -hmm. up, up a hill, you're going to drop your wheel. So don't do that. Um, mm -hmm. All of these small little things that uh, normally you don't get unless you go through a process like this. I mm -hmm. don't think it's very common these days for older athletes, people that come to the sport later. They, mm -hmm. they're definitely, there must be still people out there doing these smaller skills and explaining the sport slowly. So I got a lot of that, which really helped. And I, and I carry it and I use it pretty much in every ride yeah yeah i was i was similar to to damien so still um oh, this is we started when i was nine or ten at the local velodrome we're just super lucky we had a, a good 
333 meter concrete velodrome that I used to go down there and we'd have 20 kids each Tuesday night and I remember I'd get so annoyed with the the junior coach of our local little club because we it was a summer summer sport track racing but we would we'd always start in October and we were never allowed to race until after Christmas because we'd have to do three months of just skill stuff first before he'd actually let us out and race against each other, which definitely worked because we had barely any crashes, which when you're chucking a heap of little kids on track bikes is a pretty good achievement, I think. But I, th- I think, um, yes, yeah, similar thing. We'd have like slow races, so who can go the slowest down one straight so you're essentially trying to track stand and balance that way and then yeah just how to distribute the the braking between the front and rear brake and all this kind of stuff which at the time i just remember thinking oh this is rubbish i just want to go and race but it's definitely ends up being beneficial long run and as damien pointed out on um i think people that come into the sport later and don't have the access to those junior programs end up missing out on that completely yeah, but it's not to say that someone that comes into the sport later can't become a very successful professional racer, I think, or uh, transfer over from another sport. Um, I think, um, yeah, for um, like my older athletes that would be just coming into the sports in terms of skills, um, one of my approaches is is to get them as physiologically fit as I can. And one of the reasons I do that is is to put them in a good peer group. Because if I can get somebody fast, then hopefully they're riding around fast people, and those fast people in turn um, have a good set of skills. And, yeah. you know, when it comes to group riding with them and stuff like that, so um, it puts you in a good place in the pack to learn other learn skills and it, you might it might be in a negative way you might get yelled at you might you know but that at least you're in that uh, in that position um where you are getting yelled at by maybe like someone like you guys who had all of those skills and now you have to be made conscious of it right on the spot um but of course we're talking about like skills outside of you know this racing as well so um i guess it really depends is, on is- the athlete yeah. This is probably a good place to, to raise this idea of if you are more experienced in a bunch, um, give have a little bit of leeway. Like we all have seen people do things in front of us that drive us crazy. And I remember there was a guy cutting me off in these criteriums and I went up after the race and I was a little bit fired up and I was like, you can't cut people off. And he genuinely didn't know he was doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I felt like a bit of an idiot after that point and then we had a bit of a discussion about it. Um, so I think that's important. I think it's really important to be to be a, a little more gentle um, when you see some things happening because it may just be pure um, ignorance. Ignorance. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I'm trying to think. Of something. So there's. I have a lot of thoughts about the whole skill thing. I'm just trying to like put them in, an, in a coherent order here. Um, one of the things I think that you have to kind of talk about with skills is how you approach them. And this, I think, when I first saw that you were putting this topic out for the the, the podcast, Damien, I was like, this is going to be something that we should not just approach once. This is something that we should probably uh, come back to. 
And one of the points I think to come back to is this idea of, well, how do you teach skills? Do you break them down into their smaller components or do you do the whole skill as, as a whole, right? So um, for example, like maybe with form sprints, do you teach a form sprint uh, without any power on and so that the athlete can learn how to either spin really fast or swing the bike underneath them, learn how their balance works? Do you teach it like that? Or do you just teach them how to sprint like full on? Um, and that one gets into a little bit of a comp- little bit complicated, I think, in the sense that like, even if I saw, I, th- I don't want to be really for certain on this, but I think the data out there right now about learning skills is like, just learn, just learn the whole skill or the whole movement and, and one at once instead of breaking it down into its components. Um, but even with that said, I still like the idea of, um, form sprints just because sprints are kind of dangerous and kind of touching on what Cyrus said with like, you know, having these kids do all these, um, skills before they race. And, you know, there was a, a low amount of crashes. Um, I like the idea that the form sprint, you know, not only like allows the athlete to get an idea of what their balance is and that type of stuff when they're on the saddle. Um, but also, you know, if you have a new rider, a lot of times they're new to everything. And they're, and one of those things is maintaining, uh, the mechanics of the bike from making sure that their, uh, cleats are new and, you know, the, the, um, making sure that their chain rings aren't worn through and that, the, you know, all these things that could cause a potential accident in a sprint. Right. Um, and so I guess even, you know, it would, it would also depend. I mean, even if the data said that like, yeah, you should just do the, the, the learn the skill as it's going to be performed in the competition, something like form sprints, I still kind of like the idea of breaking, separating the actual power from the, the movement of the sprint, um, at least for the start. But, uh, that being said, you know, I have a new athlete that is transferring over from, uh, rowing. He's a newer cyclist. Um, and he's still young, but he was, you know, not a junior and, you know, our focus is to get him into as many group rides as I can with COVID right now, try to get him out racing as much as I can with COVID right now. And a lot of it too, is not even the skills that you learn in the race. It's also just like managing time before a race, how, you know, having, you know, packing your gear bags and all of those type of things. So yeah, that's, that's my thought on that. I'll hand it off to you guys. Um, the, the only other thing that I'd probably want to wrap up this topic with, uh, we've been talking a lot about beginners. What about if we flip it? What about someone, you know, that has been writing for a long time? Where does skills come into their life and their training? For me, it's more that they may need reminders. If it's only been, you know, if it's been six months since they've done a decent all-out sprint, maybe they need a little, a few sessions to, to get back up to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you, Cyrus, will do some um, self-reflection and set some personal goals for races and things. But do you have anybody directing you on how to do things, you know, like a director sportif, for example? Or Yeah, 
We'll have a director sportif that will definitely observe the races, obviously, from the team car behind, and they'll give us feedback on certain skills if they're they're not where they need to be. So it's quite common with our team, bunch positioning is a pretty poor skill because we are predominantly Americans and Irish who our domestic scenes, and then like me being Australian, our domestic scenes positioning is so much less of a, a factor. So mm-hmm. I can race in Australia for the summer and just float around the bunch. And while well, others in Australia might find that difficult to, to position in that, I the, the comparison for positioning there in terms of like I've just found in Australia, if you're leaning on someone, they'll essentially just let you move straight in. Whereas if you lean on someone in a race here, they'll you end up in back. a ditch pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the difference is pretty big. So we often will find in our team that the first few races here is just a, a big change. And if, it, if you're not focusing on it during a race, you find yourself at the back of the peloton really quickly. So, yeah, our directors will... Will let us know that, and with the radio, that's that's instant. So you you just told, all right, you guys need to be doing this. And often it's it's a mental thing, and if you focus on it, you can do it. But it, it does take practice as well and confidence. But one thing I was thinking with the experience rider as well is the the mantra that um, your cornering confidence improves linearly, linearly until it suddenly drops exponentially. So basically you, you become a better cornerer consistently until you crash and then all of a sudden your confidence is completely gone and then it, it's about regaining that. So I think that's something to look at as well if someone has a, a crash descending or cornering um, to sort of be mindful of that when you're they're returning back to fitness that they're also returning back to that cornering confidence and it doesn't become an ongoing issue because you even see that in the pro peloton a few times with riders that may have been good descenders in the past suddenly become bad descenders because of an incident where, yeah, they've they've crashed and then they struggle to get that confidence back. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I have anything else to add to that other than probably the most important skill to learn is to not wear underwear underneath your bibs. That's probably... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that's 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 a very important skill that some people haven't learned yet <laughs> yeah um but that remind that actually that uh that reminds me i think one of the one of these weeks we'll have to have a um a faux pas slash uh pet peeves uh topic where we discuss for sure because yeah anyways um so i think we're good on that topic uh, I'm sure like uh, we'll revisit at some point because I'm sure there's some things still in my head that I haven't said yet. Cyrus, uh, your topic. My topic this week is the the openers, so the efforts the day before a race, which uh, I'd be really interested to hear from you guys first on one whether you prescribe these and two what it is you prescribe if you're prescribing them and then um three the rationale behind that whether you're prescribing them or not and 
what the reason is there. So maybe mm. Jason, you first. Are you putting <laughs> these in your program? Uh, it's funny that you say that. I have a couple. I have, I'll start this out with an anecdote, and I'm going to start with this anecdote. And I'm hoping we're not like chuckling the whole time that we have, we do this discussion. All right. So, um, I was I was uh, I was in a chat with some guys I did seven with, and I was actually also meeting a new athlete down at seven. This race I did a few weeks ago, and I was meeting him the day before the race, so we were going to get out and do openers. And I t- typed in the chat. I said, "I'm going to meet with an athlete and do leg openers." And the one of the guys fired back and he goes, you're going to open your the legs of your athlete. And I was like, and I, you know, I've, there's two things here. One, I've been saying that for years and it like, I was like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> and I realized like the, the double entendre, I was like, oh God. But the other thing I was really disappointed with myself because I love puns. Right. So I, I love puns and I can't believe I didn't catch up. Papa. I didn't, I never caught that. I was just really disappointed in myself. You're too, so, too deep into cycling yeah. uh, language. To, I to know it is it's like the compartmentalization, like the co-chat is super serious, super serious. And then like the puns hat is the other thing. So, yeah. So maybe I'll share some puns later on, but anyways, um, uh, what were we talking about? Leg openers? No. Yeah. So anyways, um, it's funny. So I, I'm going to take a step back for a second. So when I explain, when I have like my new athlete kind of meetings and I, when I talk epistemology with my athletes, because that's important for them to know that, you know, when an athlete looks at a, um, at their week that they've planned out, planned that you've planned out for them in training speaks, they're if they're going to look at it as this is an argument from authority. If you want to talk about it in terms of epistemological uh, types of things, so but the thing is, is that like when you prescribe it, if you're really thinking about what is there, like each one of those workouts during the week have a different amount of evidence for you prescribing them. Okay, so like if I prescribe, you know five by fives in the middle of the week. I know there's a lot of evidence for that, but this with the pre-race intervals, as I call them, as I, as I have them labeled in my workouts, I tell them flat out, I'm like this, I do not have as much evidence for as the intervals. And I want them to be thinking critically about what's prescribed to them so that we can, so we can open up the dialogue about it. Um, and so it's really interesting that you bring that up because like I said, um, I don't think there's as much, uh, like really good, um, research out on this concept and, but we do it now. I think the difference between this doing the pre-race intervals with a low amount of evidence and anecdote behind it versus doing interventions like straight up like you know workouts that you see over and over and over again and they're for the specific purpose of adaptations is that you know those are going to be more apt to have confirmation bias involved and 
they're harder to test. Um, but uh, um, pre-race intervals or openers, that's pretty easy to test with an individual athlete of what's going to work. Like you can just have a race where you don't have it. Or sometimes, you know, I'll have athletes that have a couple of days off or weren't able to ride hard for a couple of days. And then I'll have an interval session and I might actually put a pre-race interval session before their intervals so that they could be primed for the actual intervals. And so that, those are really easy. I mean, even though they might have a bias or some an anecdote behind it, it's, it, it's, it's more, it's easier to test in a sense, even though it's not a true scientific test. So, um, I give it a little bit more, I give the pre-race intervals a little bit more wiggle room because of that. Um, but yeah, that's, that would be just kind of the, my epistemological kind of approach to them is that like, I know there's, I've never really seen a lot of evidence or research out there for it, but like, I know it works for me. I know it works for other athletes. I know other other coaches do it. But the thing is, I'm very, very upfront with my athletes. Like this is anecdotal. And then, so before I get into the physiology, I'll stop right there and I'll hand it off to you guys to see if you have any thoughts on that. I'm with you there as far as, uh, I haven't seen any good evidence to point me in a direction. So it's all coming from experience, feedback, anything that, uh, somebody, um, if some, somebody will uh, help them and th- get ready for a race or whatever, it's it's purely based on um, all these other things other than science. So it, it is one of those things, and that's why I think it's a pretty good topic here because it's ha- it's hard for me to justify it in that way that you're talking, Jason, that there's something that I can link to it and this is the reason we do it because of that. Mm-hmm. For me, it just comes down to it's very personal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very personal thing. That's I'm really loose in the way that I prescribe it because um, I want the, the athlete to take ownership of it themselves mm-hmm. so they yes. know yes. exactly what is good for them and then mm-hmm. gets them ready mentally for the next day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would, um, I would, yeah, that's essentially what Damien said there is, is my thoughts as well and what I would do for each athlete. So I remember the, f- each, each coach I've worked with or someone that I've worked with on my training has suggested to do openers. And then um, they, they do differ between coaches in what is prescribed. And I know I've seen other coaches prescribe some, some pretty heavy sessions the day before a race. Mm. And some athletes will, will take those and then others will sort of do half of the efforts prescribed. But the, it seems pretty consistent across the board of uh, a personal aspect to it. Like each rider the day before a race will have their different ways of doing things. I know some guys like to do a long sustain thing, whereas I'm predominantly just short, sharp. But then also I think the the main thing is to, um, yeah, sort of this is one where you you have to self-regulate a bit as an athlete and, and go by feel because the, the worst possible outcome is that it's detrimental to your race. So anything that's going to be causing unnecessary fatigue is obviously off the table. So mm-hmm. you are relying on the athlete to be able to to make that decision themselves um, during a session. And, yeah, I think if 
it is, as you pointed out, Jason, something that's easily testable with the, the one athlete because you can test it before a training session. You can test it before a FTP test. You can test it before a club race. Like you can try a different opening session each time over a, a two or three month period. And during that, you can, with some pretty simple documentation sort of and self-reporting work out, all right, this is working, this kind of thing isn't. And then I know once athletes have something that they find works, they'll, they'll stick to it for pretty much their whole career. And just this is what I do the day before a race. It might change a bit depending on whether it's a time trial or whether it's the day before a grand tour. But, yeah, that I know a lot of it is is from the athlete itself in this instance. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So the physiology, the physiology behind it. So, um, when I first came up, when I came up my first workout for openers, I approached it like, or I put in a 10 minute at uh, threshold or FTP, um, and then, or threshold or within the threshold zone, zone four, um, and then I put in a a single 30 second effort. And then I think I might've also had maybe like a five or 10 second effort in there, like two 15 second efforts or something like that. Um, and so the idea behind that was with the threshold, I wanted it to be long enough where I knew that the aerobic system was going to be stressed, but I didn't want it to be like a 20 minute effort or anything like that. So I just started out with 10 minutes because I knew like 10 minutes at threshold shouldn't really be fatiguing because you should be able to hold that for like an hour, but it should be a long enough where it's kind of priming anything that's in the aerobic system. And I'll get back to a bit of that in a second. The 30 second effort was to kind of, again, prime anything that would have been uh, glycolytic. Um, there's a, a, some lactate production there, obviously. Uh, and there would also be carbohydrate, uh, quite a bit of carbohydrate utilization. And then also to be, you know, um, kind of like a stimulation of the um, starting of the aerobic system, I think is a good way to put it. Um, uh, kind of VO2 kinetics be stimulated a bit there. Uh, and then the shorter efforts were just kind of, you know, just to kind of do wake up neuromuscular and and it's one of those things where you just you throw the kitchen sink at it because you don't really know which system is the one that bogs you down if you don't warm it up and so originally that's how i do it i did it and i still have that workout i still give it to my athletes but i no longer do that myself and I'm really like, I always have this thought when I'm prescribing him, like, should I keep it as it is or should I put it in with what I do for myself now? And, and so what I do for myself now is I do a single three minute effort at, at or slightly above what I would do my, uh, say my six by three minute VO2 max effort. So I would do something in like the higher zone five. Um, and, you know, in the sense that like something I've seen lately, not just like this is zone five, I'm going to go with it. And, um, and the reason I like that is because a three minute effort, 
it hits all of those things that I described off the other thing, except for the neuromuscular. And, and it's also better than the LT because you actually get, not only are, do you reach an aerobic steady state within three minutes, um, you also get this kind of reaching a maximal heart rate or approaching a, heart, uh, a higher heart rate than you would theoretically get at just riding um, for 10 minutes at LT. So I actually like that three minute effort. And for what it's worth, anecdotally, I've been using it ever since. And I haven't had a problem with it. And I just, and it's just so much less stress because I, I go to the exact same place. I would do my six by three minute intervals. I do one and I go with it. And before I hand it over, the one last thing that I tell my athletes about, um, about, uh, you know, openers is, and this is, and this is for me, I don't know if this is for other athletes, um, but I, but I know if I'm in the middle of that three minute effort and it feels like shit, then I know I needed to do it. Right. Cause I should be tapered really nicely. Cause I would, I would model myself into it. So, you know, if your legs are not activated and they're like, we feel really fatigued right now. And we're like, no, you shouldn't feel fatigued. Everything is fine. You're modeled fine. So that, if, if that makes sense, does that make sense for you guys? Like, if it if my legs are whining, then that tells me that I really need to do it. So, but th- for me, this is part of the reason why I do prescribe them the day before a race. Because if the day before mm-hmm. that was a rest day or a travel mm-hmm. day, mm-hmm. you don't know how you're going to respond to that rest day. So you need to you need to sort of um, get rid of any surprises for race day, exactly. so you can at least deal with them mentally, so you know what's going to happen. Um, yeah. Because the 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 rest day. Well, of, of course, all of this generally, when you put this in for me, I put it, it's part of a taper of some sort, even if it's a short one um, leading into a race. Otherwise, you just train through. But um, yeah, a rest day can really mess things. Your body could have a hard mm-hmm. block before that and just want to shut down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, the, doing those yeah. hard efforts the day before, they, they give you an opportunity, yeah. not just for the system, but just to yeah. know that you are ready. And I guess this is partly why they're yeah. called primers as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as openers. Yeah. So that's what I mean. Like, um, I guess to clarify it is that, you know, if you go out and you do an opener and your legs don't feel great, it can like really psychologically affect you. You're like, Oh, what the heck? I should be getting ready. My legs should be feeling good. I have this important race tomorrow and they don't feel good. Well, they don't feel good because they're probably not primed. And that just tells me that you need to prime them. And again, it gets you. You get into this like can of can of worms and with anecdotes and stuff like that. But I, I think that's where, where we're at right now. Um, I did have a little bit more to add about the physiology, but I don't, I don't know if you guys have anything else to to jump in there. Yeah, I think um, the a big part of it is definitely the the mental side of things. Um, it's just unfortunately psychologically, it's a bit of a risk because. Often they are, yeah, pretty pretty intense intervals um, either way, like that, that three-minute you're talking about. If you are really struggling with that, then that's that's going to be a big mental hit the day before a race. Um, so I think obviously it's then that's when it's important to be able to reinforce to the athlete that that was the purpose of that is to struggle with it the day before and then be better with it the day of. Um 
so yeah be mindful of that with the athlete especially with the reporting i think is important and then also conversely the the dream is the day before a big race if you are doing these efforts and it just feels like you're floating and you you can't feel any pain whatsoever then you think you're right sweet i should be absolutely good to go for tomorrow so i think yeah obviously with travel days and response to recovery from difficult blocks you can't predict exactly how it's going to be every time how the feelings are going to be but um i think yeah it's important to yeah stress to the athlete the actual purpose behind these um and the fact that if you feel bad doing this the day before it's not going to mean you feel bad during the race mm-hmm, exactly um so i'll just touch on like uh kind of practical application is you know one thing to put in with the um the openers workout you know that you would have in training peaks is also like it's a good idea to do it on the bike that you're going to race on and the equipment that you're going to race with at all if all possible you know um just so you like if you're going to do it on, if you're racing your time trial bike then you should be out on your time trial bike and maybe 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 you have the um the uh the disc wheel on and everything like that assuming you're know, hoping that it doesn't get a flat um if you have tubulars or something like that, you know, you have to weigh balance that out, of course, but like, it's going to be a good idea to have like the race set up for that. I think just so you can like, you know, tick all the boxes and make sure that the bike's working properly. Um, and then one thing I was going to say about the physiology, it's always kind of interesting to me to kind of, I hope if they ever start running these experiments and maybe they have on, you know, maybe we've just missed it. Um, maybe there's like one study out there, uh, but I've never seen anything like, come across any reviews or anything like that. So, um, I like to think about like, well, what is, what is actually going on there that, you know, it would be such a quick turnaround. Cause, um, one of the things I say, and you guys probably, um, probably say this similar to is easy come, easy go. Like, so if it's, if it's something, you know, I think about like blood plasma that comes around pretty quickly not within a day, obviously, but you also lose it pretty quickly. And, and so I, I think, um, it's, it's just interesting to, to me to think like, well, what is going on there? And I come back to, it has to, I think it must be something like at the level of enzymes, uh, and maybe some, maybe some, uh, uh, cellular proteins, like, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, membrane based proteins, uh, and maybe also just like buffering capacity or something like that. Like it, it, it's a really interesting thing for me to think about. And I hope when they start doing the performance related testing, they also kind of do some biopsies and that type of thing to try to figure out what's going on there. It, I would imagine they're probably going to have to do some mRNA type of analysis because they those have to be like what's to see like what up what up regulates or um in there so proteomics or something like that something fancy but um yeah that's all I have for that the thing that I was kind of thinking about this week and I didn't get a chance to get out and look at 
um, look to see what's actually going on now. So it's been a, a few years since I've actually looked at this with any intensity is, is this idea of like the prepackaged cycling plan or training plan for endurance athletes that would more or less come into events. So, you know, these, you might have like, I don't know, some popular event like seven or, um, you know, some grand fondo or some big mountain bike race that is very popular. And, you know, I have the layperson cyclist that doesn't have a coach that wants to get ready for this event, uh, wants to train for it, but they want, but they don't really have an idea how to train for it, but they don't necessarily want to get a coach. Um, so they would go out and find one of these plans to get them ready for this. And maybe they might even just have buy a plan to get them in shape for just anything, like just to be generic, you know, fitness and shape and get faster on the bike. I might have poisoned the well a little bit when I uh, said stated my topic for the week in the chat with you guys, but I've, yeah, it sounds like you're not. Oh uh, man, <laughs> I, I didn't want you to spoil <laughs> it. Uh, but I'm gonna be I'm gonna be as objective and scientific about this as possible. So I will try to give them credit um, as much as you know. Got to be intellectually honest here. But uh, I will open it up to you, Damien, since you spoiled the secret. You got to talk first. <laughs> sure. Train plans. Um, I have. Oh, let me let me interrupt. Up, let uh, me interrupt. I will clarify. This is a training plan that where the coach or the person who is creating the training plan has no idea who is buying it. So they are not customizing it. It's not like you've met with a coach and he's like, here's your three months of coaching because he's after he's like talked with the athlete and figured out what their work schedule is or what their abilities are right this is straight up like you bought this off a shelf and the coach or whoever created it has never met you okay so that's my clarification okay and i i'll be straight up and say uh i used to sell training plans i don't now good Maybe for you same kind of realizations <laughs> yes i came to the same realizations as you but uh, I still don't have a problem with them at a certain level for a certain person. I understand the mm -hmm. issues with them, but if we talk positive things, then why don't we start with just someone getting their head around what structured training is, mm -hmm. understanding the mechanics of it, um, learning certain, looking at different ways that different people do things, mm -hmm. different loading patterns or tapering or whatever mm -hmm. it is. So, in some respects, it can teach you some things. And if you're a beginner under a year, probably, mm -hmm. um, it's not so bad mm -hmm. if it's um, appropriate to your volume and where you are and it's mm -hmm. not going to burn yeah, you out. Yeah, yeah. Anything's going to help at that point. Mm -hmm. So so why not mm -hmm. um, is, is my opinion. Uh, personally, I just don't want to be a part of of that. I would rather be with a personal journey with somebody. Mm -hmm. I want to meet them where they are and I want to get them yep. to where they want to go. Yep. So that's uh, where my head is at now. Um, and there's, yeah, there's lots of negative things, but I don't want to harp too long on it. I want to pass it over to Cyrus to see his thoughts on it first. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, I'm probably not going to be as harsh as Jason on them. I think they have their place just 
um, it's going to be with certain type of athletes. So especially during the lockdown last year, had people coming to me that had no performance goals whatsoever, just wanted something to do. So they sort of just just wanted structure purely to get them out the door and onto the bike. So in that instance, I just directed them to that. I said, well, I'm not going to be able to give you, any, I'm just going to be essentially just charging you for something that you can get for free because there is just free, plenty of free training programs out there now. But it's just in the instance of someone that doesn't have any desire to, to test themselves doesn't have any desire to invest further. They purely just want to be using their bike as a means of physical exercise and something to pass the time when they're riding by themselves. Um, In that instance, I think it's going to be better than nothing and I don't think it's going to be harmful. But in saying that, if there is any performance goal whatsoever, you're going to be able to get so much, be so much more efficient with your time which is obviously a big factor for the majority of people that would be looking into these products in the first place. The efficiency factor behind having a personalized training program is just enormous because the the out-of-the-box training programs are just super broad, not targeting anything specifically and also just can't take into account where you're coming from previously. So I think in that instance, yeah, if if performance is the goal and performance is the name of this podcast, then you yeah, you need to be having something that's actually tailored to the individual if you want to see those results. Whereas for those riders where performance isn't on the radar at all, then I think that's the, the place for these programs. Yeah. I, uh, just to add to what you were saying, Damien, um, as one of the positives, it, it, you know, some people don't really realize like how much you have to train to get better and that you have to make it, um, a part of your week. You know, you're going to have to be on the bike, you know, five to seven times, four or five, seven times a week sometimes to, to, to see, to see gains. And that means that, you know, you have, you're not going to be able to watch all the game of Thrones and play Nintendo as much as you did before. Um, so yeah, if you, the training plans in that sense can, can help people kind of organize their time. Cause I remember when I first had a coach, it just like hit me and I had a girlfriend at the time, past tense. And I remember like she wanted to hang out and I was like, I got to train. And you just like, it was just, uh, you don't realize like how much, um, time it takes. And so there is, there is that. Um, but also to kind of touch on, what Damien was saying in terms of like being in that journey with an athlete, um, you know, if someone was going to approach me for a training plan and just be like, Hey, you know, maybe not something that is pre boxed and that they just buy off the shelf and I never have to talk with them again. Um, but if they approached me and said like, Hey, can you set me up with a six month plan or plan for like two, three months, man, I would have a really hard time bringing myself to do that. I've, I've never done that. I've actually had one woman approach me through training peaks asking me for a plan like that. And I responded to her saying, you know, just for like a few bucks more, you can get the full deal. You can get me as your coach. Like it's not a big difference between like what people would like, 
uh, you know, you're, you're talking like 50, hundred bucks. Of, uh, I can't remember how long she wanted, but like it was, it was not that much more money and the benefit would have been much more for her, you know? Um, and she never responded and it gets into those, one of these things where like people, you know, they have the, this, you know, they have it in their head, what they want and they, it's kind of a little bit of a Dunning-Kruger effect and you're like, okay, well, it's going to be better if I just coach you. But, you know, that didn't really go anywhere. And I just had to be completely honest with her. Um, but one of the analogies I use for the, even if I was going to get approached and and I would set something, and I was going to set somebody up with like a six month plan or something like that. What that feels like to me is like if I'm cruising by in my, in my, I don't know, battle crew, battleship or like my, or my, um, my yacht and I see someone out there, uh, with, um, uh, you know, just floundering in the ocean and they're like, Hey, can you give me some help? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. No, no worries. And I just throw them a life preserver and the yacht just goes take, you know, like that's not my style. Like I'd much rather be like, Hey, here's a dinghy. We're going to put a rope between your boat and my boat. And we're going to do this together. And I'm going to throw you food and like, you know, you know, but like this analogy can go however far as you want it. But that's the point. Like it just doesn't sit right with me to like have all the knowledge and experience that I do. Uh, and then just leave somebody out there to flounder. It's to me, it's I remember, not about, yeah, yeah. I remember once we had a, com- yeah. I'm just going to cut you off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we once had a converse, conversation about um, one of my relationships with an athlete. And it, it came down to this point where I was like, yeah, I'm not actually so involved day to day with a lot of the coaching things. And you're like, yeah, you're an engine builder then. So that's like, it's kind of what a training plan is. It's an engine builder in some ways. It's not this thing of innately, innately, you know, if you're a coach, you're a coach for a reason. And that's because you want to have an impact Uh one-on-one or in a group or whatever it is with the people that you deal with. So there's innately, it sounds like for you, and I have the same thing where, you know, I want to be involved in the process as much as possible. I don't want to just be the engine builder. Uh Yeah. And that was part of the struggle, like, you know, with, uh, offering the sports science and sports scientists and training scientists consulting for coaches, you know, then they come to you and they talk to you about what they need with, or the issues they're having with their athletes. And you give them that advice and then they go, they run with it and they help their athletes out. But then again, it's back to what you were just saying. Now I'm distanced from the athlete and part of the enjoyment of being a coach is being there with them through the journey. And so, I was like, man, that's going to be tough. Like, you know, you're going to be helping. There's potential, you know, to 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 help out some very successful some coaches of some very successful athletes, and then, you know, you're just going to have to. uh, I just have to sit in the background. Um, But I think it's still better because I would be helping a human and kind of the coach and be taking them on that journey. Um, I know. I've uh, pause for a second. Do you have any other thoughts on that? Cyrus? No, basically basically what you guys have been saying. I, I would agree with that. Yeah, just that when if you yeah, have someone looking to 
to improve, then it's going to be a lot easier to do that with them. And from the same token, yeah, I find it difficult to to coach someone that is sort of um, it's. I guess it's a, a different issue, but just the non-compliance thing. Um, despite the fact that you get in the the bank transfer each month, if you're not actually working with them and and if they're just um, going off and and doing something different anyway, I think it's it's not actually that rewarding as a coach. So it's the same with sort of just setting this program and then having them go off and and do it, even if they are following something that's been been set months in advance. I think it's yeah, it's not really coaching in in that sense. You're not actually directly involved in that person's progression. Yeah. Um, so I'm just gonna. There's two. There's two points I want to make yet. Um, one is like kind of getting a little bit more down into the just some of the touching on some of the nitty gritty of why I don't like it. And part of it is is like the more user performance model, you realize that like. And like, man, I wouldn't, if some, it's, it's really hard to be precise and accurate and not overtrain people or undertrain people without that, without some kind of model to kind of guide you. And it's, it, it, it's hard enough when you are having the one-on-one relationship mm-hmm. with someone yeah, to be exactly. worried about overtraining, yes. for example, yes. <laughs> like, and you're watching yes. it every day, Yes, let alone sending them off into the wild for six months. Yeah. And then you would have someone that was, you have no idea where their fitness is. And now you're going to hand them a training plan. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like one of my, you know, from knowing the, the sports science side of it, I'm just like, why I'm so, it, it irks me to, to say it uh, light, to say it lightly. Um, <laughs> I think I use stronger words than that. And <laughs> when I uh, was in the chat with you guys, Um, but, but here's the thing, here's the thing I can see, I can understand two things. I can understand like why it's really attractive to coaches to give these like cookie cutter training plans is one, like when it comes to coaching and making money, it's not a good way to make money, right? Because it's not, it's really hard to leverage because you know, you have a certain amount of athletes you know, you can try to do things that like to cut down the amount of time, but at the end of the day, it's face to face to face time that you, that's just really valuable. That's going to take time with the athlete. Even if you have all of your data analysis techniques, like down pat, that's still going to take time, you know? So you there's, there is a, there is going to be a ceiling to how much you can make as a coach in that model. Right. And so traditionally, if you want to stay in the coaching business, you do one of two things. You would get other coaches to work underneath you, and then you are managing other coaches. And so um, so you're building a business like that. Or the other way to leverage it is with these training plans, because you can build a training plan um, into one of these events I'm posted on, I think you can post stuff like this on training peaks. I, I thought you could, I don't know if you can anymore. Um, and yeah, now you've leveraged, leveraged yourself really well. Cause if it's an electronic training plan, you could sell infinite amounts of that plan, right? So you've put in a few hours or however long it took to, to 
make this plan and now you've got a bunch of people that are paying for it and it's going to make you more money potentially than um, working one-on-one with athletes. So, but here's the thing like this, and this is kind of like, it reminds me of, in a sense, I really got to watch how I say this, but it reminds me like, of like people who sell homeopathic cures or certain supplements, right? Like there's so many, like we know there's very little evidence for like homeopathy, but like if someone gets convinced that they work and then they start selling that that product and they're making money or they're living or a good portion of their living off off that product, the chances of convincing that person that the product that they are selling is detrimental or doesn't work approaches zero, right? And so that's the other kind of thing here with, with this, with these plans is that like, yeah, they do have some benefits and enough benefit that maybe as a coach, you can like convince yourself that what you're doing is it doesn't hurt anybody. So I'm going to do it. And at the end of the day that, you know, I'd much rather, I'm not going to have like a big, I'm not going to have an issue with a coach that sells a training plan and, and not to sound like a total hypocrite, Damien, you said you used to do it. If someone, if, if I had a following of people and they're like, you know, it'd be really awesome if you just like made a plan, I I might do it, but I'd be, I'd go through this whole spiel, right? I'd be like, this is the down, this is, this is what you are. These are the risks of, of taking this plan from me. Like be, be aware, right? That's how I would have to sell the plan. Um, so yeah, I, I, I understand that like in the coaching business, the training, the pre cut cookie cutter, like training plans that you just sell to any Joe Schmo that is on the street that you never meet. It's really attractive, but you know what I'm much more yeah. interested in yeah, as yeah, a coach yeah. is, is probably, uh, I would buy a pack of another coach's training sessions. Mm, just to see what they're doing like pure purely voyeuristic <laughs> uh, to see what other people are doing yeah that sounds much more attractive to me yeah definitely i was um gonna add that in that i'm super lucky that um given i'm coaching under someone else and we all there's four coaches using the same training peaks account we can all just look at each other's sessions um but often i'll be just having almost like coach's equivalent of writer's block with how many ways can I target the VO2 um, system like VO2 max area here without just ending up giving him the same session over and over again. And um, then, yeah, if I can just look at other coaches VO2 sessions and yeah, see that and go, geez, that's really cool. Um, I'm going to steal that essentially. Mm. It's sort of, it goes both ways with that. But yeah, I think that, um, and even just in my own training, I have my favorite sessions as everyone does. But if I yeah get get sick of doing something and think, all right, I really still want to target around my FTP zone, but I'm sick of doing five by fives or whatever. Which, by the way, is one of my least favorite sessions personally. But the blasphemy. I, <laughs> yeah, but I um if I'm yeah sick of that and then just find some creative ways there's um yeah more than one way to skin a cat Mm, yep 
All good points, gentlemen. Um, I don't know if I have anything else to add to that, but yeah, I do have maybe a little bit of a deep-seated hatred towards <laughs> uh, prepackaged training plans. But yeah, I will. I'm not going to be. You know, I'm still going to admit like there is some tiny benefits to it. But at the end of the day, for anyone that's in the audience or the listeners that are listening to this podcast please consider working one-on-one with a coach. I think it's going to be much better for you if you find a good coach to work with. Anyways, um, just to, I think we're done with that topic. We'll just uh, open it up to the audience to see if anyone out there wants to raise their hand and like bring up anything that's cycling performance related. We'll have a chat. We actually got two people. Uh, Damien, do we have, do we have the, um, do we have it mic'd up right now? No, we're not recording. Oh, uh, so you're not recording in the chat. Okay, so we'll, so just so you guys know that uh, when, we, when you come in, we'll ask you the question, and then we're going to have to repeat it back f- so that the recording picks it up. Okay? And uh, we'll, talk, we'll bring in uh, Manthan first. Welcome to the stage, Manthan. I should be coming in. There we go. How are you going? What's what's your what's your statement or question there, Manthan? Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. Um, Great, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Try and repeat that one, Jason, <laughs> without sounding like you're, you're bullshitting what he's just said. Well, I mean, I'm a sepo, so we're all about talking about ourselves, <laughs> right? Yeah, no one's gonna believe it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what. Now I'm just gonna have to yell at Damien and uh, like, why don't you have the room mic'd up yet, brah? Um, but anyways, uh, so there's some kind words from Manthan saying uh, saying he appreciated the breadth of our knowledge and that he was happy that he joined the room. So thanks for that. Uh, Manthan, hopefully I'm pronouncing the name right. Uh, we have another uh, uh, guy in the audience, Luca. We talked with him briefly last week after we stopped recording, so hopefully he can come on stage. I'll bring you on stage here, Luca, and uh, thanks for coming on stage, Manthan. Hi, how are you going? Luca just asked where we are all located. Nah, well, the two Australians <laughs> are not in Australia, and, <laughs> yeah. and the one American is <laughs> Luca's uh, statement was that you know he's as, as he put it he was what is it, a, a, an amateur maybe even lower than an amateur um, and he was talking about the training plans and how they are they benefit him because they give them something to do and I would agree I would agree like I didn't want to I don't like them for I guess for the sense of building an athlete or up to the maximum potential that they can have. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's not like they don't have their place. Um, I think my concern is with the undertraining and overtraining of athletes and which you you can get that from a coach you get the right coach and he'll overtrain you <laughs> um so um yeah do you guys have any thoughts did I, did I did i paraphrase you right there luca yeah 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 it's not, did i did i cover your your comment uh appropriately okay okay yeah yeah, yeah. awesome uh yeah just oh, sorry yeah. you go luca 
Okay. Um, so, yeah, just to add to Jason there, the, and I think going on from Damien before that um, it might be yeah, a good idea for you, Luca, to just continue with that and it can be a good starting point while your goal is just to, to be riding three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. So yep. it's going to completely depend on what your goals are. And then if a goal in future becomes performance, then it can be a good time then to look towards a coach. Mm-hmm. And then also it can be fine to yeah try those out. And if you get to a stage where you think, all right, I, I feel like I'm not doing enough or this is exhausting me, then you can consult someone that's going to be able to give you the, the tailored program. But it is, it's going to be completely goals-based as any, any training is. Like it's going to depend completely on your goals. So, yeah, if your goal was to, to get on your bike three or four times a week, then, and if those aid you in that, then definitely keep using them. Yeah. Yeah. Thoughts, Damien? Nope. Mm, mm. Well, uh, on that, um, I think I think we've covered. Do you have anything else, Luca? Luca? Yeah. Um, so Luca was saying that he was talking to a professional cyclist and um, about FTP testing, and they were talking about uh, the basically the graded exercise test versus the classic 20 minute test in order to, to determine FTP and what Luca was gathering from this conversation with the professional was cyclist was that he was saying that, um, if you were more of a sprinter, then you would use the graded exercise test to determine FTP. And if you are a, um, uh, if you are a, um, sorry if you are you know more of an uh time trialist or something like that you would use the 20 minute time the 20 minute effort uh to determine your ftp without having a direct conversation with this professional cyclist and know what he means um i don't want to say misunderstand him or anything but like that that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me um and Actually, for to determine FTP, both those tests have some flaws to them. So, um, for example, for the for the twenty minute test, most people are doing the twenty minute test all out, and they are timesing it by 0.95 in order to do determine uh, their functional threshold power. Um, except, I think <clears throat> if you were to read the book, um, the test is prescribed as an all out five minute power then the 20 minute power then you times the 20 minute power times 0.95 they might have changed that in the new edition but i think that's what it says in the second edition so that means that you've already done a hard effort before you've done this 20 minute test and what i have found like with myself and i actually just with my my new athlete that i brought on um is that the 20 minute power test by itself with a 0.95 correction. I think for a lot of athletes who have like really good five minute powers like myself and my new athlete, um, it artificially inflates that number. So for example, he did his 20 minute power around 392 Watts. And then I sent him out. I needed, I need to get a, our heart rate for him. So I could, uh, for the modeling and stuff like that. So I said, go out and do an, an hour time trial, you know? Um, uh, and he didn't went to uh, a velodrome and did a Merck's 
test basically and um thanks coach yeah Jeez. well it's it's like a one it's a one-off thing so guys before you yell at me it's, it's like because you need um you need a heart rate based ftp um for uh for the model to work and if you don't have a power meter on all your bikes so there isn't like a really good like conversion to for that you just can't take the 20 minute uh, heart rate and times it by 0.95 and he will probably never see that again so i just needed that you know and if i watch his criteriums or something like that i'll be able to get it i i can't remember the last time i prescribed that to an athlete right i just needed that number to, so i could get a good model on him anyways uh now that i've apologized to everyone <laughs> um uh what was my thoughts and so but his power was his hour power was actually what which is what ftp is supposed to represent his was actually quite a bit lower than what i had calculated for his ftp so you know maybe it was a pacing issue or something like that he's not um uh, exactly a seasoned rider he's pretty new to it so any of these things could have could have happened but the point is is that like this 0.95 conversion there is going to be a lot of wiggle room in there so there's the f- kind of the flaws going on with the 20 minute test. Uh, but this, and I started with that one cause that's the better one t- for me. <laughs> um, the graded exercise test, like I have not actually sat and, and seen the protocol that they have for the graded exercise test, but I have run, um, gosh, probably over a hundred graded exercise tests now in a lab. So I know what a graded exercise test looks like when you have somebody hooked up to a metabolic cart and I don't know how they are calculating FTP off that. I do not trust it. Um, and if, and I'll take a minute to plug the semi pro podcast, uh, or the semi pro, uh, cycling science digest. I just wrote about a classic paper and the reason for this. Um, so if you do a great exercise test and so you're going to hit your, max mean maximal power so it's just gonna be our, um so this is our up i'm sorry peak power output and uh that is going to be associated with vo2 max and so but the thing is is like your vo2 max versus your lactate threshold if you have two riders that have the same vo2 max they could have very very different thresholds and again this is what this paper was all about and and so if you're basically a graded exercise test is going to be really good for determining peak power output. And if you're hooked up to a metabolic cart, it's going to be really good for determining your VO2 max or your maximal oxygen consumption. So all I can really think of for them to be like calculating out FTP, again, this is just from my own experience, is that they would be doing some kind of, you know, percentage of um the peak power output which might roughly 82.5 80, is 82. okay so i was about to say 75 percent, and that would be yeah. where i'm I don't at know why it's 82.5 yeah but i don't know either yeah. because it, i've just seen that used consistently yeah so for me it's again it comes back to gosh it's a big guesstimate and 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 this is one of the issues i, I like i kind of have like with uh um, the AIS, the Australian Institute of Sport, great institute, 
But it doesn't make sense any, to, any sense to me that they have prescribed their zones off of an athlete's VO2 max um, because endurance athletes, it's all about their threshold. And so I, it just sounds really wonky to me to determine a threshold based off of a graded exercise test. But that's totally admitting I haven't seen these specific tests. So there's could be something I'm missing. Someone could come back at me and be like, hey, you forgot this jerk. Uh, you didn't consider this. But like from where I'm standing, um, if without physiological data, so ventilatory data, uh, lactate data, um, I wouldn't be really comfortable determining a threshold based off of a graded exercise test. So thoughts, guys? Yeah, the the thing I was thinking about, if someone's recommending one test over another, they're probably thinking about if you're a fast twitch predominant athlete or a slow twitch athlete. Mm. And so if a fast twitch athlete is trying to do 20 minutes, maybe they're going to be um, underestimating their FTP or overestimating, whichever way it is. So it's more likely that you'll get a better result if you're fast twitch dominant to do a ramp twist test because it's quicker and it's only sort of depending on the protocol, it could be anywhere between five, three or one minute um, max effort at the end of it. But probably overall, there's a bit of personality um, there, like what, what you prefer to do, which type of test you prefer to do, like not going into the details that you went into, Jason, of what's more valid or not, mm-hmm. but just between the two options, what do you prefer? Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then maybe finding another way to test like like you did sort of, you do the you did the twenty minute, then you did the real hour, um, and and you saw the difference. And you'll probably try and now work out a difference be, between those two, and and it sits somewhere in the middle there, or um, whatever you'll come to. You have a you have more data to make a better decision mm-hmm. on. So it's something like something like that. I think is here, but for me, probably choosing one of them and then doing some other durations, so testing at one minute, mm-hmm. five minutes. Yeah. Um, and then and then building an understanding of yourself that way. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll jump in here real quick and just kind of add something like, um, as to stay intellectually honest and to admit, I mean, I try to figure out FTP without testing as much as I can. So I might have to result to... So I have... FTP to me is, is is a cat that can be skinned many ways, right? So, um, yeah, you. The thing is, with all tests, they're they're all going to have their weaknesses, and so um, I just think the graded exercise test of of all the examples is probably one of the ones I would use the least. I would actually use like uh, interval sessions or things like that to, to get an idea. And, and FTP to me is about build the determining FTP, uh, is about building a story for me. Uh, it, so I don't look just at the 20 minute test. Um, I will look at where's their CTL at, how's their other intervals doing? Um, you know, I, I want to get a few points of data kind of, um, justifying what I have a determined FTP at. And, 
and it's and for me like what is the job of ftp what are you using it for um are you use it for, for modeling okay well then there's kind of be a little bit of uh wiggle room there are you using it for zones eh, probably be a little wiggle room there too um are you using it for breaking rights well there's probably going to be less wiggle room for you then um <laughs> um but yeah, that's that's my thoughts. Uh, sorry, sorry to jump in there twice, but uh, if you want to get on that and have any thoughts, yeah, I think the the key is being able to use multiple methods. And if you read pretty much any paper, because there's regular papers coming out comparing ramp or graded exercise mm-hmm. or time to exhaustion, different kinds of of tests. The, the key is having a physiologist at hand to be able to apply data across different from different testing methods and from real world writing. So I think that's where our roles actually come in as coaches to be able to look at all of that. The more testing, the better, but for determining that accurately, but testing is pretty, pretty uncomfortable and unpleasant mm-hmm. for athletes. Yep. So you definitely have to be mindful of that but yeah i think the yeah it's also an important thing is that the number isn't set in stone and just changes so much that which people definitely don't allow for enough i've found they'll just take that 20 minute times 0.95 and that's their ftp forever Mm -hmm. and yeah not change that around so i think Jason's point of looking at CTL is a really good indicator. If you see the that ATL jumping up a heap, um, and yeah, the CTL obviously rising with it, and the athlete is coping fine with it, then that's probably an indicator that the FTP is in there too low, um, and that that's improved, and that could be a good time to do a test to reaffirm that, and then you can combine those two measures together to reassess whether that FTP is accurate. And then conversely, coming back from an injury or an illness or whatever, being able to use the um, the data that you have because no athlete wants to come back after two weeks off and start with an FTP test. So being able to use some data from intervals to, to make a good estimate of the FTP is going to be really important as a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you had a good point in there, I forgot. With the CTL, um, shoot, I forgot. But yeah, oh, oh, I, one thing I was to what Damien was was saying is, um, or what Cyrus is just saying. I'm sorry, uh, it's hard acutely for the athlete to test. But the other thing is, is that you have to taper the athlete for the test. So you know, you're you have a you might be missing a day or two of good hard workouts. Um, because you had to taper your the athlete for this test. And so it might, it, it could potentially push you back a little bit, um, in terms of, um, in terms of fitness and, and, and how, how well your build is going. It's not the end of the world, but it is one of those things where like, well, maybe if you could figure out some uh, estimate of FTP based off of an interval session and some other things. Um, one of the other things I do is I, I look at how much TSS is accumulated within a session, um, which is basically 
another way to look at that is looking at an intensity factor. But um, you can start looking at, um, for example, if you look at your PMC and you have all the uh, intensity factors up in PMC as well, and you start seeing the intensity factors are starting to trend up, you're like, oh, what's going on there? Well, it just probably means that the FTP is getting set too low. Um, or uh, like I said, with the TSS in a workout, if you start seeing like these amount of TSS getting up there and you're like, hmm, this looks kind of high for the zones and what um, the time and that type of thing. So, um, yeah, so that's those are all kind of things that... That's a good problem to have, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Start saying those things. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, That's the ideal thing to be yeah, saying. Yeah, so those are things that tell me like, okay, it's time to do a test or readjust um, some things. Um, you know, and I'm in, I actually have a test that I really like with, with two by twenties. Oh my gosh, Jason doesn't do a 20 minute test. He does something different. Yeah. I mean, I have, and I just kind of made it up and I, and I like it because you know, what I do with two by twenties, um, I like that test better than a 20 minute effort because me, I, I suck at 20 minute tests. I do a lot better if I have figure out some kind of hard effort and do a warm up prior to it. And so the way I do it with to an FTP test with two by twenties is I have it use a different conversion factor. And you know, if they go out and they nail the first one, then I'll use that as their 20 minute. If they do really awesome on the second one, then I'll use that one. If both of them combined together uh, are higher then I'll use those. So um, I don't want to get into the specifics of how I do it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, after a few years of using two by twenties, um, I, I, I tend to like that. Uh, the other way you could do it is, is with the golden cheetah, uh, using the critical power. But of course, obviously critical power is different than functional threshold power, but you know, depends on what you're using it for and how you're going to split those hairs. Um, and the other thing is with the, with the, the, um, the critical power calculator in, in cheetah, golden cheetah is, is that if, if the athlete finds out that the lower their five minute power is, the higher their FTP is, it doesn't really let them motivate. It doesn't really motivate them to go out and do a really hard, uh, five minute effort. Cause what it basically does is calculate uh, critical power based off of a shorter kind of like uh, aerobic steady state number, like so they would see in like a VO two max interval. So like a th- three minute to eight minutes or something like that. And then it also calculates it off of a, a longer effort. So it doesn't have to be necessarily a, a static 20 minute effort. You could have just had like a really good 25 minute effort and you could have had a really good three minute effort and you put it in the golden cheetah calculator and it gives you critical power. Um, but Again, critical power is an FTP and then it gets down this whole rabbit hole. And then like, what are you going to use it for? But like, is it good enough? Yada, yada, yada. So, yeah. Anyways, that's all I got. Unless you guys got something else. I think we will and truly cover Oh, we beat that one to death. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think we will uh, sign off on this one. Uh, thanks for Luca for coming on stage and, and chatting with us. And, um, uh, I guess we'll just share our details real quick. Um, again, I'm Dr. Jason Boynton. You can check out what I do 
on boyntoncoaching.com. Uh, you can also find me at, at boynton underscore coaching on Instagram. And where, where are you at there, uh, Cyrus? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Cyrus Monk and Twitter at Cyrus underscore Monk and my website, cyclistscientist.com. And we also are on socials at a podcast now. So on Instagram, we are at Cycling Performance Club. And Twitter, we are at Cycling Club Pod. So if you can check us a follow, that would be much appreciated. And share us with your friends. Damien. Yeah, so do that. <laughs> yep. Damien. Don't bother going to my website. Just do that. <laughs> Damien is the brains behind the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast and the Semi-Pro Plus. That's where you can get all your latest cycling information. Check out that guy's stuff and sign up for a what monthly membership. Yep. Sure. And that is a wrap on the second episode of the Cycling Performance Club podcast. If you would like to join us in the conversation or ask us any questions during our live recording, please find us in the Cycling Performance Club on the Clubhouse app. And we'll be looking forward to including you in the conversation in the Cycling Performance Club.